Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm the senior editor of the e-journal Global Cemetery. It's my pleasure today to welcome into the virtual studio uh, our colleague, Scott Kennedy. Uh, Scott uh, will sit down to discuss with me the uh, consequences of the uh, China National People's uh, Congress meetings that just concluded uh, last week. This sit-down follows two episodes on shaking the global order, this with Carrie Brown and focusing uh, with Carrie on, on the China-U.S. Uh, rivalry and Carrie's um, uh, examination of Xi Jinping policy and Xi Jinping thought. Scott is the Senior Advisor and Trustee Chair in Chinese Business and Economics at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, that's CSIS, a notable think tank in Washington. Scott focuses on Chinese economic policy, including industrial policy, technology innovation, business lobbying, U.S.-China commercial relations, and global governance. Scott has written extensively on China and China business issues. Before Scott uh, came to Washington and to CSIS, he was a professor uh, at Indiana University. So it's a great pleasure to bring into the studio my colleague and friend, uh, Scott Kennedy. Well, it's a great pleasure to have today uh, visiting with us in the virtual studio, Scott Kennedy from CSIS. Welcome, Scott. Thanks for having me, Al. It's good to be here. It is indeed. Okay, so let's let's take a look. We're you know going to focus in on Hong Kong first, and then look at the broader China relations, and obviously China U.S. So um, uh, let's start with the recently concluded. Uh, National People's uh, Congress. This is the so-called two sessions gathering, an annual gathering, which had been delayed because of COVID, but nevertheless did take place and ended uh, relatively recently. And it was indicated that a, the NPC was going to draft a new law to safeguard national security in Hong Kong, um, and that uh, this was going to take into account to criminalize secession, subversion of the central government's power, terrorism, and activities by foreign and overseas forces, uh, which were deemed to interfere with Hong Kong. Uh, so what does this mean? I mean, what is, what is the intent of China and the implications for, um, in particular, the One China, Two Systems policy? Sure, sure. Uh, you know, the National People's Congress session really uh, had a, a very much a, a dual complexion to it. On uh, economic issues, uh, there was a lot of pragmatism. Uh, China abandoned its uh, annual GDP growth target, uh, reoriented its focus on unemployment, and uh, rolled out a variety of measures uh, which were about stabilizing the economy, jobs, keeping companies afloat, uh, mm-hmm. but not not going overboard. At the same time, uh, they also passed the, this uh, resolution outlining 
the this new national security law on Hong Kong, which will be finished drafted being drafted by the standing committee of the NPC this summer uh, mm-hmm. and then implemented this fall in Hong Kong. The um, I, I think it does signal uh, in a very big way that uh, under Xi Jinping, uh, it's not possible for Hong Kong or any region in China to enjoy any significant autonomy, not even a high degree of autonomy. It's uh, Xi Jinping is cut from a distinctive cloth compared to uh, his predecessors uh, who in the 1980s negotiated uh, the joint declaration with Great Britain and then uh, adopted the basic law. Uh, so this is not uh, the be all end all all by itself, but it's part of a very clear pattern. Uh, and, you know, today, and so when the State Department said that China, uh, Hong Kong no longer enjoys a high degree of autonomy, I don't think what they were saying is that daily life for Hong Kongers is equivalent to that of people in the rest of mainland China in terms of their availability to new, news, NGOs, etc. It is the, oh, they have, but they don't have much autonomy over setting the rules that govern their society any longer. That is now clearly in, in Beijing's hands and no longer in the hands of the Hong Kong government itself. Hmm. And so, so then what does it mean now to have a one country, two systems under Xi Jinping's rule? What's the two systems? Sure. It means that China has, uh, is, is close to having one country, one system yeah. uh, in, in which uh, uh, Hong Kong, yes, it's, it's, uh, uh, in absolute terms, um, a freer society. Uh, it's got uh, protections on privacy, an independent uh, judicial system. Uh, you know, much more cosmopolitan and international in orientation than much of the uh, much of mainland China. But what we what we are clearly seeing is is that is eroding, uh, and we are seeing each element of its autonomy and difference uh, be. Uh, extinguished, and so we should expect uh, over the course of this coming decade uh, the significance of elections, the breadth of free press, the availability of uh, access to the global internet, uh, the uh, educational materials in schools, mm-hmm. all of those things uh, to change. What may be left is that Hong Kongers will be allowed will be able to continue to drive on the left side of the road. <laughs> Uh, and but other than and and maybe they'll get rid of that too, since that was a British imperial import. <laughs> so, but nevertheless, uh, I think the writing is, is clear. As long as Xi Jinping is 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 writing the story of Hong Kong's future, it's a less autonomous future. It's a less autonomous future. Okay. Uh, so, t- to the extent there's any autonomy, you're suggesting it's potentially in the economic sphere, potentially judicial. But evidently, no autonomy when it comes to the political sphere is what you're, I think, suggesting here. Uh, well, I think it'd go even further than that. You know, there's that famous phrase, the sky is high and the emperor is far away. Yes. And what that suggested is that, <laughs> you know, folk, the further you get from Beijing, uh, the, the more space that you have. Uh, and, you know, 
these days that the height of the sky is a lot lower everywhere in China. And I think it's mm-hmm. lowering in, in, in Hong Kong. And I think even on issues of the economy, yes, the proportion of private companies and private assets and, and uh, finances uh, will, will be more private, more international. But in terms of setting the rules over how that money is spent, et cetera, we ought to expect a much greater hand from Beijing in a Xi Jinping-led China, where local governments have a lot less authority uh, mm-hmm. than they used to. It'll just be that you know Hong Kong will be a lot more like Shenzhen or Guangzhou or Shanghai than it is like it uh, the Hong Kong that we are that we're we've come to know and love. Okay, okay. Um, so, uh, and that's obviously a big change. I, I wanted to raise with you, the, uh, and it probably the answer is already there. But uh, the, in Hong Kong, there had been the annual uh, vigil with respect to the Tian, uh, Tiananmen Square massacre, right? I, I, I'm presuming, in part, because there was an indication from the former Hong Kong chief executive, Mr. Leung that in fact uh, that would be prohibited as well. Is that uh, your understanding? Uh, it's hard to say what the permanent rule will be on this, mm-hmm. uh, but from what I understand, uh, it's already uh, June 4th, uh, early morning in, in Hong Kong, and that today, Hong Kong time, uh, they will not be able to uh, go on the streets and have their typical vigil. Vigil. Carrie Lam apparently has said that that's because of the pandemic, and they don't want large crowds getting together because of the potential dangers to public health. That's seen by many as an excuse, convenient excuse in this case. And we will just have to see uh, whether uh, Hong Kongers follow that uh, advice uh, and and stay home. Uh, they have shown that uh, they don't necessarily pay attention in, uh, to what the Hong Kong government and Carrie Lam advises them to do. So I, I don't expect the streets uh, to be empty uh, mm-hmm. on June 4th this year. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll see. I did note, too, uh, it made the Wall Street Journal just recently that um, one of the senior executive uh, members of the uh, HSBC, the very significant bank, uh, and in fact, uh, the individual is head of the Asia Pacific Group, I think, within HSBC, and that's Peter Wong. Uh, he was seen signing a petition to support um, the uh, changes uh, that the NPC had uh, indicated. I take. Does this suggest that you know, in effect, uh, at least some elements of big business are falling into line with respect to these uh, the the change of Xi Jinping? Um, I, I I suppose so. We have to really talk to him and and the bank to be sure. Uh, you know, it is interesting that HSBC is caught up in the controversy surrounding Huawei and Iran, mm-hmm. right? And, and it was yeah. the bank that apparently was duped by Huawei to, to do business uh, when it when it shouldn't have and wouldn't yeah. have had it known the facts, but that, and it's possible that HSBC is uh, a source for sh- this information being uh, eventually obtained by, by the U.S. And so mm-hmm. HSBC is in relatively hot water in, in, in Beijing, whether or not sure. they deserve it. And so uh, this type of statement uh, certainly weighs on the other side of the scale but again, what their genuine intentions are, 
uh, is hard to say. I do think that there is a reasonable desire amongst businesses and everybody else and students and parents uh, that there's not a lot of violence, uh, that life can go on, daily life can go on. There's certainly the same concerns about uh, in, in, the, in cities in, around the United States now. Mm -hmm. But in China and in Hong Kong, we know that public statements like this carry a lot of political weight and that they usually are done with some kind of very clear intent to signal uh, mm -hmm. to, to some political authority the position of the institution. So uh, we'll have to see uh, how, how folks interpret this going forward. All righty. So obviously there was reaction to the announcements of the NPC, and I'll point you to, our, uh, <clears throat> to uh, the U.S. Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, who declared that, as many have read, that Hong Kong no longer maintains a high degree of autonomy from China. And um, it paved uh, the way for a statement by uh, President Trump, of course, to announce that he would, in the, in the future, revoke Hong Kong's special status under, uh, under U.S. law, that is, the tariff advantages that Hong Kong has. Um, uh, what do you think... Um, uh, you know, what was what is uh, our good friends in the Trump administration trying to achieve here? Sure. So, again, I, th I think, you know, according to the 1992 Hong Kong Policy Act and the uh, Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act that was passed last year, mm -hmm. uh, the uh, secretary of state has to certify that Hong Kong has a sufficient degree of autonomy to warrant continued treatment by the United States as a, as a distinctive jurisdiction relative to the rest of China in, in order to be treated differently across a whole variety of ways, whether it's uh, tariffs, standards, uh, export controls, extradition, flights, you name it. You know, mm -hmm. and, and Hong Kong is a separate uh, customs territory at the WTO and and the US honors that has honored that because of the the view that it has this high degree of autonomy so this uh, declaration that that Hong Kong no that the US no longer believes Hong Kong enjoys that is sets up the possibility but not the requirement that the US will change policies across the board to reflect that new reality as the U.S. sees it. Now, we can have a debate about whether the U.S. is right or wrong, but uh, if the U.S. decide, but the U.S. now is in a position to change those things, but it doesn't have to. So I think the, the, the uh, State Department's and the, and the Trump administration's intent mm -hmm. is t uh, by announcing this change of status without changing actual policies is to try to deter Beijing from writing the national security law in a way which is uh, um, highly oppressive and try to uh, soften how it's implemented. Um, and so I think if we get to see a draft of this in the summer uh, that looks uh, pretty hard line, uh, then you could start to see some of these uh, steps taken to change uh, actual treatment of, of Hong Kong in, in American law 
um, as opposed to just simply the change of, of status that, that's been done so far. Precisely what order they'll go in, how quickly they go, it, it's hard to say. My guess is that they don't start with tariffs, but they start with things like export controls and visas mm-hmm. uh, uh, and uh, save those other things, things for later. Uh, but the, I think the basic idea is hopefully to set these things uh, is to roll out the policy in a way that it serves more as a deterrent rather than just as an immediate sanction. I see. So but I guess the question then becomes, well, uh, you know, assuming they go in the kind of that order you're talking about, which is not necessarily tariffs first, but other other um, privileges that are there for Hong Kong. How does that assist, you know, Hong Kongers? in their effort to maintain uh, greater freedoms? That's a great question. And I think it's one everybody is asking. Uh, you know, if you, I, you know, the idea, I suppose, is that the U.S. is such a big market mm. uh, that it has such sway with allies and friends around the world uh, that China's dependence on good relations with the United States and others would deter it from going forth in these efforts. Uh, now that's, you know, something that countries do, including China uses pressure, but, um, the, the, the challenge is, 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 I guess is twofold. The first is, um, these are really high stakes for Beijing, uh, super high stakes. I mean, for them, uh, from the way the communist party sees this, this is about maintaining their hold on power. And for that, that means that their monopoly on power and Mm -hmm. protecting Chinese sovereignty, and some loss of trade and investment and access to high tech probably doesn't weigh very high on the other side. The second is, is that in order for sticks to be really effective, the Chinese also have to realize, be able to perceive that, that the U.S., if they were removed those specific penalties, that they would get something in return and that there would be some stability brought back to the relationship. And the U.S. has provided no reassurance whatsoever that the, that this relationship is on potentially firm ground anywhere. In every sphere of the relationship, this, the, uh, things are unstable and, and, and going south. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that both, so those things make it, uh, I, so it, unlikely that China mm-hmm. will be deterred uh, by the U.S. because of these efforts, and probably more likely to press on and be ready to endure whatever pain the U.S. throws at it, uh, and or deflected whatever they they can do. So I think that that's the motive of the U- U.S. I, the chances of it being effective are probably pretty low. Okay, and so uh, one could expect at least. Uh, in the in the near term, you know, the continuing what appears to be tit for tat that seems to be in play as between China and Beijing, that is, and uh, the United States. Uh, indeed, right. They have been um, arguing on many different levels, many issues on journalists, mm-hmm. trade tariffs, uh, technology, uh, visas, uh, currency intellectual property, uh, access by airlines. Um, Yeah, I saw that. I I think you can pick just about any issue and and look for them to potentially um, 
take action. I would call this negative reciprocity. You know, the the sure. uh, Trump administration talks about wanting to have a fair and reciprocal relationship, but that's that's an outcome where you would hope the Chinese would reduce their barriers at least to the level in which the U.S. has theirs and and lead, have a more open relationship. But the tactic of pushing China is about reducing China's access to American markets, uh, at least to how poorly the U.S. thinks China is treating it. And that, that's the direction in which reciprocity is going in a negative direction rather than in a positive one. Okay. I'll come back uh, in a moment to maybe ask one or two more questions about the U.S.-China relationship. But before we get there, I, I did want to reference what you had noted, which was that uh, at the end of the NPC, uh, and this is getting at, you know, what's the state of, of the Chinese economy, um, uh, Premier Li Keqing, as you, as you noted, um, did not uh, include in his, uh, uh, did not announce at the NPC, um, the uh, annual GDP growth target for this year. And that's been true uh, since 1990 that they've uh, signaled that. So what can we take from that? Is this is an indication that it's a very uncertain um, economic situation in China right now? I, I think for at least for this year, uh, the, the uh, leadership determined that setting a growth rate would be counterproductive uh, one, because it would be amazingly embarrassing to set a new target of around one and a half percent, which is which is uh, instead of, you know, it being six percent or a rough, you know, where they were um, yep. at the beginning of the year. And so the second is 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 that they want to uh, try and provide reassurance to a very shaken public. Remember, in January, when Dr. Li Wenliang passed away, there were 800 million messages on WeChat issued in a single hour. Right. Uh, and so people were really skittish. And, and although China has, you know, come roaring back in many ways, uh, and certainly faster than, than the U.S. And, or other, and some other Western countries, that uh, there's still a lot of anxiety amongst this leadership and amongst the Chinese public of, about China's future, uh, particularly in the context uh, since U.S.-China relations are, are really going off a cliff. And and so in order to try and feel look more human, to say, I feel your pain and to suggest that uh, they need to reorient, I think that's why they went with this decision. Now, as you know, there's been pressure for a long time from economists and others to say, hey, bag this target because it just over focuses uh, investment to, to hitting those numbers and doesn't mm -hmm. lead, and it is, leads to a lot of inefficiencies. And so the question is, you know, you know. Next year, 2021, uh, assuming this year is about as bad as it is, as we expect, but they get a glide path to 2021, you know, you're probably going to get more, much more significant growth next year off of this very low base. And so, so is China going to come back and say, we want to hit seven or eight? Uh, that would be sort of the knee jerk reaction. But I, I'd, I'd give, I'd hope the Chinese would abandon the target permanently and mm -hmm. say, actually, we, we're going to set we're other kinds of goals related to, uh, household income or um, uh, unemployment, those kinds of targets that we see in advanced economies that would, I think, be a, a, a better reflection of where, where China is. So I, I take it, you know, uh, somewhat of a positive sign. Let's see uh, if it's if it's just a one-off or they build off of this. Okay. Um, 
I'm I'm thinking again, still looking at at the Chinese economy. I wanted to raise with you uh, recently. Uh, our uh, colleague Fareed Zakaria wrote, "Ever since, and this is getting at Xi Jinping uh, policy making, which you've talked about already. Uh, ever since uh, President Xi Jinping became the country's supreme ruler." Um, uh, China's economic liberalization has slowed and its political reform, limited in any case, has been reversed. And we've talked about that. Beijing now combines political repression with nationalist propaganda that harks back to the Mao era. Uh, abroad, China is more ambitious and it's more assertive. These shifts are real and worrying. Is this where she is taking the party and the government? I mean, you know, they use the big phrases like China Dream and so forth, but is this kind of the, you know, um, uh, uh, development of uh, Chinese policy in the face of his of Xi's leadership? You know, I'm um, more convinced that mm -hmm. China today feels a lot more like 1878 Germany than it does 1968 China. Uh, that uh, really the, the better model or source of comparison is with Bismarck in Germany after Germany was reunited or united and uh, grew quickly, highly globalized, not autarkic at all the way cultural revolution China was. And uh, assertive internationally, as, as we know, tried to find accommodations with others, but really never quite got there. Um, and, and then we, we know the rest is history a, a few decades later. That to me seems to be uh, the best parallel. Uh, I could see Rush Doshi, who's at the Brookings Institution, yes. is yes. right written about this, I think, in a pretty persuasive way. Doesn't mean we need Thucydides trap and war down the road, but that to me seems the best model or, or end uh, of, of, of what's going on. In terms of reform itself, uh, my I, you and I probably have endless conversations with our Chinese economist friends about whether or not China is still reforming. And the yeah. typical thing I, I hear is I get a laundry list of changes where the Chinese are opening their economy with regard to finance, pharmaceuticals, pick another sector. But I think the broad overall trajectory is one more of, of tightening, of making things more difficult for foreign businesses in China and competing more assertively abroad. Uh, China's, uh, despite the phase one deal, it didn't mm -hmm. touch su subsidies. China Inc. is still operating at full steam and going to go at 120% this year uh, and push on AI, 5G, autonomous vehicles, biotech, you name it. Um, and I think the way the Chinese think about reform now is, is, is very different than in the past. It used to be about market liberalization at home and, uh, and, and international liberalization, reduction of barriers abroad. I think now reform is let's make the state more effective and where the market works, we'll use it where it doesn't, uh, we won't. The Chinese a few weeks ago passed a new proposal about how to think about reform, a, a significant document. Um, it's not like the document that they issued at the third plenum of the 18th Party Congress uh, mm -hmm. several years ago when she was just coming to power. This mm -hmm. one actually says, we will use markets uh, in light of international experience. Well, that means, well, 
You've got some areas where the market worked well, and then you've got things like the global financial crisis where free market economies didn't fare so well. So I still think that China's you know, not committing to go back down that old road of liberalization, which, you know, my Chinese friends say, well, that's we're doing what we think really works and we're not going to be ideologues and stuck to free markets. I said, well, OK, but that does mean that you're probably going to have greater diplomatic tensions with free market economies. Well, let's pursue that just a little bit. I mean, if the if <clears throat> The the uh, those who kind of are at the heights of, of China's economy and are looking at direction and so forth, um, you know, likely to favor things like uh, state-owned enterprises as as the major um, uh, economic actors in in China. We know from people like Nick Lardy, your colleague in Washington, at the at the Peterson Institute. That it, unfortunately, from China's perspective, those state-owned enterprises are, you know, far less efficient than is the case with the private sector in China. So what is this suggesting in the future direction of the Chinese uh, economy? Well, uh, Nick's uh, really one of the world's leading experts on China's economy. I, I had the good fortune of uh, being his research assistant a few <laughs> decades ago. And uh, he's, a, he's a great mentor and uh, a teacher for all of us. And I, mm-hmm. I really think that he's, he's right here. Um, the, the basic data show that SOEs are less efficient. Uh, but for uh, the Communist Party, they are a core source of political power and financial control that they don't want to give up. And in their mind, they can find ways to make those SOEs more efficient than they have been. Uh, and so uh, hmm. and okay. they've got a pretty big uh, bucket of savings that uh, they can draw on to uh, deal with the challenges of inefficiency and debt. Uh, you know, the China's savings rate is over 40 percent, right? So if they, if and most of that debt is domestic debt. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so given that balance sheet, uh, China can afford to take some losses. And they can say, well, on the defensive side, we're going to put a bunch of money into SOEs. We're going to try and put more money into health care and mm-hmm. uh, the social safety net. Where are we going to play offense? We'll play offense on high tech and private companies like Tencent, Alibaba, Baidu, uh, you, you know, Hikvision, yep. et cetera. And, and that's where we're going to move ahead. And those are mostly private companies. And so, you know, so yes, we're going to, we're going to get some, we're going to build up a bunch of debt on SOEs, but we need them politically but we're going to try and also play offense with these private companies at the same time. That's their strategy. I still, th- so the, the question is, you know, can the, can they get, can they generate enough turbo boost from these private high tech companies to make up for the waste and inefficiencies and the mm-hmm. drag from continuing to support SOEs all of the time as the population is aging and everything else, that's the, uh, as we used to say, $64 million question, but 64 million bucks goes nowhere today. Uh, so it's going to have to change the number of that. So, but that is, I mean, China is the living experiment about a new approach to governance, very different from, you know, what uh, folks tend to think works. But when you're big and powerful, you got your own nukes, you don't depend on the U.S. for you know your survival. You, you get it. You get a chance to to try different things. You get a lot more mulligans 
uh, for those who uh, listeners who know about golf. And so I think that's what the Chinese are Chinese are attempting to do. Okay. Uh, although again, set within the context now of the global pandemic and the impacts on uh, you know demand and supply and all the rest of it, not just within China but more globally. It does strike me as maybe maybe the flexibility and room you're talking about isn't as large as they might have thought even uh, you know a year ago. Certainly, that's true. I mean, uh, China's got you know more debt. Certainly, international pressure is is rising where it wasn't before. They had a lot of diplomatic space to do things. Folks would complain, but they really wouldn't follow the complaints up with. Right. Uh, with with hard action. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, some of these problems are becoming more severe. But every time we count China out, whether it was um, in uh, the early 80s when they just started reform and they got big budget deficits in 81, 82, right. after Tiananmen in 1990, 91, uh, after in, the, in, in 93, 94, when they had tr- the fir- for the first time triangular debt, after they in the midst of the Asian financial crisis, uh, after the dot-com bubble, uh, after the global financial crisis, I mean, about seven or eight times. I mean, right. China's China's re- does better than any cat I know, uh, and so every time they they come out of something, they unexpectedly, of course, the way they solve problems generates new contradictions and problems. So if you believe in dialectical materialism or whatever, you can see that the way they're trying to address the pandemic is going to is is planting the seeds for another problem down the road. But isn't that how governments do things? Usually they it's it's a lot of a lot of success is about kicking the can down the road, avoiding mm-hmm. problems of the day. And so we think of the Chinese as like, you know, having this hundred year, thousand year plan. In fact, a lot of the plan is just figuring out how to avoid catastrophe right now. The Chinese are pretty good at adjo- avoiding catastrophe. Okay, fair enough. Well, we'll we, we, we will certainly see. Let me t- turn uh, again to you know where how they're trying to shape uh, their relationships more uh, uh, globally. Uh, I'll turn to our colleague uh, Carrie Brown from King's College um, uh, at uh, the University of London and director of the Lao China Center there. Um, he, we've been working in part, a number of us, uh, with him in, in a project called the China and the West Dialogue. And for our listeners, you can check out, uh, Carrie, both at episode uh, 28 and episode 29, which is the precursor to this episode, uh, podcast episode. He says, um, uh, 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 China acts in an orderly way sometimes. Uh, but its political values and, and the way in which they have been expressed under Xi Jinping show that China does so for self-interest, for preservation of stability and order that works for it, with a different notion of responsibility. So I guess the question, if we're looking at it in the bigger scope of uh, you know governance, global governance, international relations, does this suggest, this uh, framing of Chinese uh, politics and leadership, that China really doesn't have much of an intention of becoming a responsible stakeholder. That's the phrase that was uh, raised by Robert Zellick way back in 2005. I mean, where, how is China going to play in the bigger, uh, the bigger frame? Sure. It's a great question. And, uh, and you, Carrie, are doing a great project. It's really, really important. And I'm going to have to set my... Uh, podcast dial to uh episodes 28 and 29 <laughs> now i uh 
I, I can't believe how long it is, but uh, we'll, we'll let listeners know that you and I first met in 2006 yes. in, in Waterloo, just a year after, less than a year after, after Bob Zellick's speech. Right. And at that time, uh, folks were, th- you know, looking seriously at, at China's learning curve in global governance and how it could gain capacity to uh, learn the rules of the game and then impl- implement them and uh, and then also participate in setting them. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was the there was most of the most of the challenge was, you know, that the Chinese were, you know, this was a capacity issue. And also, you know, there was just a, a transition that the Chinese were going through. But there was some optimism there. I think uh, looking now, people are are quite upset that the Chinese seem to be uh, being uh, serious stakeholders in an irresponsible way and have gone from being a free rider to what I call a heavy driver. Mm-hmm. You know, they are they are doing they've grabbed the wheel and they're jerking the wheel in a different direction than we want them to go. And I think the change is it's really what we've already been talking about. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the change in leadership uh, from uh, uh, Hu, Hu Jintao, Jiang Zemin, previous leaders and Xi Jinping. Uh, I don't think it's just about trying to get more powerful or having some co- innate cultural distinctive this distinctions that make it un- so it will never fit in a Westphalian system or a globalized system. I really think there's very just big differences between these different uh, leadership regimes and their views of China's place in the world. I think the previous group was really interested in integrating, yet they mm-hmm. faced a lot and and learning those rules and and tweaking at the margins pushing different types of reforms like the G20 or changes in how standards are set or et cetera, mm-hmm. but they, they weren't looking to overthrow it. And I think that's because they saw that China was a, needed to be uh, a really a hybrid in which the economy was, was marketized in many ways. And there was a lot to uh, borrow from the West, not necessarily the United States, but from yeah. Canada, from European, co- you know, continental countries as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think as a result of the global financial crisis, Snowden, uh, pressure from Trump, uh, and their own success, they're like, you know, forget that. We're not, we don't that we don't need that kind of transition anymore. And so that's fundamentally changed China's view of what their role in global governance should be. You know, making the world safe for China used to mean making, you know, sort of improving, reforming these institutions. Now making the world safe for China means making the world safe for a a hard authoritarian country that really wants to make sure that the global internet uh, is not a place of just free exchange of ideas, that governments have the authority to control information, that, uh, um, that industrial policy is legitimated, including standard uh, subsidies, Mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, in in areas of international finance and aid, it's uh, the the folks with the mo- spending the money should be seen as uh, investors, not necessarily donors. Uh, I think you could go down the line here to see a, a, a very different view. Some of those are consistent with the current rules of the game, but as as I see it in terms of like the system, I think the Chinese want to sovereignize just about every area that they can and have the state play a greater role, um, and so. That's a big difference between what they were seeking before and what they were seeking in the past. Mm-hmm. And, and so that makes it more contentious. It's even, it's even more challenging now because um, 
the Western countries, particularly my country, at least on the in the executive branch, they've also seen to given up on uh, multilateral global governance as well. And so you've got these two giant powers who have basically taken a, a very different turn in their approach to the international system and global governance, uh, making the, the future of, of, of these regimes uh, quite uh, unpredictable. Okay. Well, let's end with then kind of with the big question. I would point out, by the way, you, you raised kind of the Bismarckian world as the kind of a potential expression uh, for this for current period. I would point out, by the way, that, of course, during Bismarck's period, which is the 1870s, the 1890s, Bismarck was very uh, careful uh, to constrain Germany's action, never talked about uh, empire, etc. It was only in the later period, after Bismarck's uh, leaving, uh, that you get the the Kaiser going after the place in the sun and all the rest of it. So it, you know, I think if we're taking Bismarck as the example, then the constraint uh, seems to me to be the governing principle in international relations uh, then and hopefully now. But I I wanted to raise the question. Okay, so. What should U.S. policy be then, Scott, uh, in the face of the, some of these changes that you're seeing and the efforts then? What does the United States, maybe a different administration, uh, do with respect to U.S.-China policy going forward? Sure. Okay. You're, you're a better historian than I am. And that's, <laughs> we, we knew that from the beginning. So I didn't know that Bismarck practiced the policy of hide and bide. Uh, but I guess he, he I did. guess he did. And uh, the, now Wolf, uh, you know, warrior diplomacy is a little bit is more like Wilhelmian Germany. And mm -hmm. uh, the community of destiny probably has more ambitious tones to it than people want to admit. I don't think the Chinese are quite there yet, but certainly there's a, a noticeable shift away from from hide and bide. And, and, and everyone is quite anxious. I think in terms of U.S. policy and what we ought to do. Um, there's no one easy right answer for this. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I guess where I start is, is not in uh, with uh, trying to orient American policy in response to China, but to answer the question, what kind of world does America want? Mm -hmm. Start there. And if I start there, I say the world that I want is one with a reformed and improved liberal international order where where democracies are valued, where there is accountable government, where there's a lot of transparency, where we, we strengthen social safety nets, we address the challenges of the 21st century with regard to advanced technologies, climate change, pandemics, and globalization. A, you know, get a globalization 2.0 and, and uh, that's much better and more durable. So mm -hmm. if that's the world that you want, uh, then you say, well, how do we get, you know, can we fit China into that world? Now, either you, you, you'd say you'd like to, because without China's help on uh, public health, climate change, managing technologies, you're mm -hmm. going to you're not going to you're not going to get there uh, or it's going to be much more problematic. On the other hand, you've got a bunch of other things where you really disagree with the Chinese because they don't want to play ball in the ways that we've already talked about uh, because of their political system and desire to make the world safe for today's China which isn't mm -hmm. a liberal place. So that means that you got to be really careful in how to try and induce the Chinese into the system and then build risk management mechanisms in case they, they say no. 
And so I think part of that is about going back to uh, some of the policies of the past that previous governments, Republicans and Democrats, have embraced with regard to the multilateral system that the U.S. was a partner with others in creating and building and facing China with greater numbers. Standing in the back alley by yourself with China is not a, 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 a pathway to easy solution with them. Mm -hmm. So in addition, obviously, the rules of the game uh, need to be adjusted. The Chinese can participate if they want, but at some point we're going to have to say we're going to have to reach some uh, conclusion here. And maybe that will occur through uh, fully universal multilateral institutions where everyone gets a say. But if mm -hmm. we can't, then maybe we're going to need to go to plurilaterals or, you know, friends of X topic to mm -hmm. get some progress in some of these. And then we'll just see how what the weight of uh, things go. And, and, and how these things turn out. And the same time, you have to protect yourself and play a little bit of defense in the meantime. So I'm not saying just go back to how it was done before and just hope that the Chinese adapt. But I think we're going to have to use every tool in our toolkit, multilateral, unilateral, bilateral, and, and be creative about the type of future that we want in order to get the world that we want uh, and manage our relationship with China at the same time. Sound it sounds very good. I mean, we have talked uh, our our um, <clears throat> China and the West dialogue. It talked about effective multilateralism, and clearly, uh, it it seems to capture some of what you're talking about here. Where um, you know, if you can't have everybody, well, that's that's the name of the game, right? Uh, you need to move forward. Um, I really want to thank you, Scott, for taking this time. I really, uh, it was great uh, discussion. Um, on uh, China and U.S.-China relations. And so thank you very much. Hey, it's great talking with you. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Global Symmetry Podcast with Alan Alexandrov. This episode was edited by Kyle Fulton, and the music you heard was composed and performed by Rory Lavelle. You can find more of his music at rorylavelle.bandcamp.com.